WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. You may have seen a television show about the courtroom and how they use things like lie detectors to figure out what is going on and they use those results in the courtroom. But how do we know if that's actually good or not? What is the relation between neuroscience and the courtroom? Today we're here with Deval Gandhi to tell us more. Deval, can you please tell us about yourself? Hi, my name is Deval Gandhi. I'm a senior this year. I'm a part of the class of 2021. I'm graduating with a Bachelor's of Science in Neuroscience and a degree in History, Philosophy, and Sociology of Science, which is like a big fancy degree that just kind of, it gives me kind of a broader appreciation for how science is conducted. Through these majors, I did an independent study in the fall where I did a lot of independent research on how neuroscience can play into the courtrooms and how they kind of lean on each other. Thanks for joining us this morning, Deval. Could you elaborate a little bit more on what the history, philosophy, and sociology of science major entails? I don't think I've ever actually met someone that has studied this. And what are the different things that you learn in this kind of major? Yeah, so it's definitely a small group of us that are majoring in HPS. The last time I heard, there's maybe 20 of us um, on the entire like Michigan State undergraduate student body. So it's a pretty small, like not well-known major. And what we primarily look at is what is science? How should science be conducted? Who should participate in science? We look at these broad general questions and we try to come up with the reasons and interpret why science happens the way it does. A lot of HPS people like to relate it to the environment. How come climate change activists aren't able to connect with the general public? Or how can doctors make patients more comfortable? And this all goes into like the sociology, the philosophy, and the history of how we can make science more approachable for the general person. Science can be intimidating for somebody that's kind of an outsider looking in, and HBS's major goal is to make it more inclusive to everybody. I really appreciate that explanation because it gives me a better understanding of how you use neuroscience with your research. You're basically trying to connect people who study the brain and the courtroom to see how it all is working together. Can you tell us more about your research and how your background is so important with it? Definitely. So I've always had a really big interest in the brain. So that's why naturally neuroscience became my major when I arrived to Michigan State. And I've always found law fascinating as well, like how we can determine something to be moral. It kind of goes into like these large philosophical questions that I love to explore. Neuroscience and the legal field together combine to create neural law. And there's two major ways that neuroscience is used in the courtrooms. The first is, is somebody being truthful. And we see this all the time with polygraph tests and fMRIs more recently. And then the second way is, was there a reason that somebody caused a crime? In the past, we've seen like famous cases. The person that attempted to assassinate Ronald Reagan tried to use his diagnosis of schizophrenia as a reason for why he attempted to behave in the way he did. And this led to a huge, it's actually one of the largest early cases of neuro law in the country. So mostly my research focused on the first, which is the polygraphs, the fMRIs. Can we determine if somebody's telling the truth or telling a lie? 
before this interview, I had no idea that this kind of work was actually taking place in the courtroom. And it makes me feel more comfortable knowing that justice is becoming much more neutral as we progress towards the future with more advanced techniques. Speaking of techniques, you mentioned the polygraph and the fMRI. Could you discuss what the difference is between those two techniques and how they're used in relation to neuroscience in the courtroom? Yeah, so the polygraph test was invented first in like the 1920s by some law authorities in California. And it essentially is determining if somebody's lying through arousal. So naturally, if somebody is lying, their heart rate's going to increase, they're going to maybe sweat a little bit, they're going to start moving their hands all over the place. And the polygraph machine is able to detect this. It's measuring arousal, which is used to measure if somebody's lying. The fMRI, which stands for functional magnetic resonance imaging, basically is just detecting changes in blood oxygen levels in the brain. So if an area of the brain is being activated, it uses oxygen in the blood, so it's being consumed. And an fMRI is able to detect this. So when somebody lies, theoretically, there should be areas of the brain that light up because they're using oxygen. And then we can locate and map out which areas of the brain are being lit up as somebody does a task, including lying, telling the truth, even everyday things like washing dishes that lights up areas in your brain. It seems to be that an fMRI might be more accurate than a polygraph because an fMRI is measuring levels within the brain. But someone that can be doing a polygraph might not have the same reaction of lying versus someone else. Do you happen to know if there's an advantage over using one over the other in the courtroom and if one is preferred over the other? I do. So polygraphs are used, were used in the past, and I think there's only one state, New Mexico, I believe, that still allows polygraphs to be used. In the last 30 to 40 years, there's been a huge public shift and outcry against using the polygraphs. A lot of murderers were exempt from their murders because of polygraph tests. And a lot of innocent people were also convicted of murders that they didn't do simply because the polygraph said that this person committed this crime. Again, polygraphs at best are only 80% accurate. So that 20% accuracy or failure to be correct is a huge uh, implication. That's one out of every five people potentially serving a sentence that they didn't deserve. So fMRIs are definitely the better of the two. They're well understood, but they're still just started to be used in the courtroom. I'm familiar with how a polygraph test might look because they show them all the time on television, but I'm not too sure what an fMRI procedure would look like. Is that something that takes place inside of the courtroom or is there a separate room where all of these tests are performed prior to the actual trial? fMRIs are typically conducted prior to a courtroom hearing because they require a lot of equipment, they're expensive to conduct, and they need specialized researchers to perform these tests. So it's not particularly possible for fMRIs to be conducted live in a courtroom. So usually people that are put on trial and they decide to use neuroscience-based evidence against this person or in favor of this person this all this will be conducted well before it goes in front of a judge. Danny brought up a good point that we never really see it happening on television. You already mentioned that the polygraph is not a reliable technique. Only 80% of them may be accurate and then 20% of them are not. 
What about fMRIs? Like, how do we know how reliable they are or how accurate they are? That's a great point. We got to first look at what it takes to lie. So lying isn't just simply lying. It's a multi-step process, right? So if somebody asks you, what were you doing two days ago? And you don't want to tell the truth. You want to lie. Well, first you have to inhibit telling the truth. Then you have to figure out a lie, like be creative and come up with a story and then decide if that story is like plausible. Like, will this person buy the story? And all these like three different actions, inhibiting the truth, coming up with a story, deciding if this person's going to believe the story or not, they all activate different areas of the brain. And there's every area of the brain can be activated for multiple different things. Um, There's areas in the brain that like, for example, when you smell something delicious that it lights up, but it also, if you're in extreme pain, it also lights up obviously smelling ice cream and like breaking your leg. If those activate similar areas in the brain, it can be hard to determine. Like we know that this area is lighting up, but we don't know why it's lighting up. There's no good way to know why it's lighting up. So there can be a lot of false positives with fMRIs as well. Based off of that answer, that makes me believe that there's still a lot more work to be done when it comes to fMRI. What does the future of neural law look like to you based off of the research you've performed in regards to these techniques? Do you think that we're going to become more precise in fMRI to continue improving its use in the courtroom? Or are there any future techniques that you think are up and coming that will be better for use in the courtroom? Honestly, there I don't know the answer to that. I'm excited for what the future holds with neuroscience, as a lot of people are. But I, I don't know if I believe fMRIs are the answer. Currently, with how we do research with fMRIs and how we are trying to use fMRIs in the courtrooms, I find it quite problematic. Again, because different areas of the brain can light up for different reasons. And this could make somebody appear to be guilty when they're not. And in American law, obviously, it's like innocent until proven guilty. So in I'm sure in the future, new machines and new techniques are going to be developed that might make it more accurate. But there should be a high standard before we can determine if this person has committed that crime based on neuroscience based evidence. There was a court case that went to the Supreme Court, United States versus Sheffer, where the Supreme Court actually determined that polygraphs were unfounded scientifically. And I think there's probably going to be a very similar thing to happen to fMRIs in the next few years. Uh, But again, that's just my opinion and speculation as more and more problematic facets of fMRI are discovered. I find it really interesting that at the end of that court case, the Supreme Court had decided that polygraphs were not an accurate tool for determining whether or not a person is lying. But then different agencies within the United States, such as Department of Energy or Homeland Security, will use polygraphs to screen their applicants to determine whether or not they're lying about certain details about their past. And that determines whether or not they're given things like security clearance. Could you talk a little bit about why these agencies still use these techniques, even if the United States Supreme Court has ruled against them? So my older brother, he, for his work, he also had to undergo a polygraph test to get government clearance, which was interesting because this happened in 2020. But in 1988, there was a law that was passed that was called the Employee Polygraph Protection Act. 
um, which basically safeguards applicants from having to go through polygraph examinations in the hiring process. So like the Supreme Court's stance is that the polygraph is not accepted by the scientific um, community, so therefore we shouldn't use it in the legal community. It becomes more of a thing where, oh, well, applicant A is willing to undergo a polygraph test and you aren't. So therefore, there's a little bit more trust in applicant A because they're willing to go undergo a polygraph exam. So that's usually how sometimes, or most of the time, polygraphs are now used in like the hiring process in the department. And that's kind of the impression that my brother also gave to me. That's pretty interesting. Now, I'm wondering a little bit about yourself and your research. Have you ever performed any of these tests or have you seen anyone perform them? So I have seen people perform fMRIs. Uh, I have not seen anybody perform a polygraph in person, and I've never performed either of these tests myself. Again, I'm just an undergraduate, and typically to perform these tests, you need years and years of research, or you need to be in like the legal field, like established in the legal field to get your hands on these devices. Earlier, you mentioned that you're dual majoring in neuroscience as well as in the history, philosophy, and sociology of science. And in that second major, there's philosophical questions that you're considering when it comes to the use of fMRI and polygraphs in the courtroom. How do you take the philosophical questions that you developed and implement them whenever you're doing your research for these two different techniques? I love the history, philosophy, and sociology, the HPS aspect of things, because it it lets me determine if the research that I'm doing is, if it's moral, if it's correct. So tying this back into neuro law, there becomes a lot of amendment, potential amendment violations, which is something that not many people think about. So the fourth amendment that protects people from illegal and unreasonable searches and seizures of their possessions. So is scanning somebody's brain like an illegal search of their property? Like, do we own our brain or is it kind of we are our brain? So it's the same as like searching somebody's pockets, which, you know, you can get a warrant for. So could judges give warrants to start searching people's brains? And that goes down an entirely different rabbit hole that doesn't necessarily become apparent if you're just doing the research and just only performing the fMRIs to determine what the fMRIs can show. Another amendment that gets thrown into the air with neural law is the fifth amendment, which is, I plead the fifth, which is like protection against self-incrimination. If somebody doesn't want to testify against themselves, but if you put them on the stance, stand and they potentially do incriminate themselves, right? They want to attempt you know, deceiving or lying or like not give the full truth because I guess they have the right to attempt that. And if the brain scan shows that this person is, you know, potentially lying, it contradict like their brain is contradicting what they're saying. What, who do we believe the brain or the person? You bring up some good points. If someone's doing a test on someone else, they really do have to give consent because it is their brain. But who determines these morals? Like, is it the government that determines it or is it scientists? Like, how do people determine whether this really is a violation of these amendments or not or people's morals? So this is another way that HPS alumni can make a difference in the world. A lot of people that graduate with HPS degrees 
will go on to get advanced degrees in public health, and they will try to educate politicians, legislators, the general public to help create laws and rules that determine these moral, like, or that answer these moral questions. That maybe if we make it illegal to let judges give warrants to search people's brains, then obviously courtrooms can't do it. So it all comes down to educating, which is a huge component of what HPS strives to do. You have a lot of options ahead of you since what you're studying is such an interdisciplinary field. What are you interested in doing once you've earned your degree in these two majors? Are you interested in pursuing a higher education degree in public health like you had mentioned in your previous answer, or are you going to go directly into the public sector possibly? So that's a, that's like the million dollar question that my parents also love to ask. Honestly, it depends on the day. Some days I want to potentially go into medical school and you know, make a difference for patients. Well, some days I want to go into public health and potentially help influence legislators to make a difference for like a nation. So it all depends. I definitely want to continue teaching and asking, getting people to ask science questions, people that aren't familiar with science. It promotes scientific literacy, which is crucial for us to make changes in our society to evolve and become better, in my opinion. So I want to do something where people aren't afraid to ask scientific questions and aren't afraid to learn about sciences, whatever that might look like. I think it's great that you have so many options and passions. Thanks a lot for joining us today and talking to us about your research. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Daniel Puentes for Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Sophie Sagan, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandron, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. This show, as well as the entire Impact 89FM podcast lineup, can be found online at impact89fm.org or by searching for The Sci-Files on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on The Sci-Files, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at sci-files at impact89fm.org. See you next week on The Sci-Files. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.